He is a Denver native born of Denver natives. A former Denver chief deputy district attorney, he is now an active Colorado trial lawyer. Bright, independent, and full of fun, he has been part of the media for decades. This is The Craig Silverman Show. What a world, what a life, what a day. Saturday, January 7, 2023. The first show of the new year. Dave Gunders, our troubadour, has the perfect song, New Last Chance. 2022 was a bit of a stinker, but oh, the promise of 2023. Especially for the Queen City of the Plains, Denver, Colorado, which will elect its 46th mayor. Michael Hancock, term limited, cannot run. Therefore, there is going to be a new mayor, and it's a wide open field. I've identified the major candidates, and they include CU political science professor James Walsh. After this break, give a listen to this guy. He's entertaining as hell, and maybe he has a Hickenlooper chance of pulling this off. John Hickenlooper. No experience in politics, yet now he's our senator after being governor and before that mayor of Denver. Could this be the fate of Professor Walsh? I want to be involved in this mayoral race. It's important not just to Denver, but all of Colorado. Even this region, Denver is the major big city. It's a huge job. Can Jim Walsh measure up? On the back end of the interview with our troubadour, Dave Gunders, we talk about current events, including this clown show in the Republican Party being led by Lauren Boebert, who craves attention. Some people want attention in the worst way. She demonstrates that with her service as Colorado's embarrassment. Part of my falling out with former colleagues is the respect and deference they give to Boebert, who's in the angertainment industry. I brought you um, Adam Frisch, who should have beaten her. He's a moderate Democrat. He almost did. But he got no real play on right-wing media, which is where Boebert lives. She's made a further name for herself. She's made a further fool of herself, but that sells. And literally, these people can outgrip Donald Trump. MAGA has gotten away from even Donald Trump, and it's not clear he can get it back, which means 2023 could be a great year. When it comes to being mayor of Denver and running for citywide office, it pays to be liberal. Professor Walsh is a liberal guy, but I think he's got a lot of common sense. He understands history, and he's got some strong roots. You will enjoy this interview. Episode 130 is a doozy. First, Professor Walsh, then our troubadour, Dave Gunders. Give a listen to his wonderful song, New Last Chance. Happy New Year, everybody. Enjoy. 
It's hot in here. Did that toaster catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bagel. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way too decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. <laughs> now, part of that was serious, and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday, and if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at mblawllc.com. Now back to the Fred Silverman Show. Hey, being a lawyer is a matter of judgment. You have to know the law, the facts, but good judgment is essential. If you don't understand how Donald Trump is culpable for the crimes committed in his name, then I question your judgment. I have the good judgment to question Donald Trump. If you want a lawyer like that, instead of a knucklehead who believes in the MAGA propaganda, call Craig. 303-734-7156, 303-734-7156, I am Craig, Craig Silverman, a voice for victims. Professor Walsh. Hi, Craig. Good morning. Good morning to you. Thanks a lot for doing my podcast. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm happy to be on it. Thanks for inviting me. I'm excited to talk to you after doing some research. I'm a pretty old guy now, but I loved college and classes that made me think. History classes, poli-sci, and your class seems like a beauty. Tell everybody what you do for a living. Well, I'm a a political science professor at CU Denver. Um, I've taught history and poli-sci there for 25 years. I've looked at your syllabus, the classes you've taught, U.S. history through fiction. I would have signed up for that. What are the books that you teach there? Um, I haven't taught uh, U.S. history through fiction for a while, but I remember a few of them. One is called Out of This Furnace. It's about steel workers in the turn of the century. One's called Bread Givers, which is um, a, a novel about um, Jewish immigrants in, in Manhattan in the early 20th century. So. You know, books, I try to use books that immerse students in a, in a painted world rather than just an intellectual academic viewpoint. And it helps, it helps them see the past in a different way. You do come from the Pittsburgh area, as I understand it. Uh, tell us about your upbringing and uh, how you ended up in Colorado. Yeah, um, it's kind of a long story. I'll make it short. I, I grew up in a town called Butler. It's a steel town north of Pittsburgh, about an hour. All of my uncles and my grandfather were steel workers. My grandfather worked 40 years in, in the mill, and his lungs gave out at, at the age of 70. Um, so I grew up in a blue-collar, very working-class Irish Catholic family of seven. Um, the sport of wrestling is what got me out of Butler. I became, it's a big sport in Pennsylvania, kind of like Texas football. 
it got me a scholarship to Duke University. Um, I boarded my first airplane and flew to this land of wealth and privilege that I had never experienced before, but it opened up my world and led me into the humanities, uh, which is something that no one in my family had ever pursued. Um, and that brought me to Colorado because I moved here in 1990 to study poetry at Naropa in Boulder. I, I think I consider myself the only wrestler poet. <laughs> but I, I moved here in 90 with the intention of just spending a summer in Boulder, and I made my life here. Now you've got me thinking about other wrestler poets. Uh, Muhammad Ali was a bit of a poet, but he wasn't a wrestler. He was a boxer. Um, what a fascinating background. Tell us about your family. Did you meet uh, people here? Did you have your own family uh, with Colorado roots now? Yeah, I have a, I have a 12-year-old, um, and they're the, the light of my world, no doubt about it. Um, and I have my Colorado family would just be my very close friends, which I've surrounded myself with and my extended family, which is my six siblings and who are kind of scattered across the country and nieces and nephews. What a fascinating guy. But the reason I'm talking to you is I'm a Denverite fourth generation and you want to be the 46th mayor of Denver. And I think you've got a shot. It's a crowded field. You tell me, how are you going to win this thing? That's probably the most common question I'm asked. Um, you know, there's there's a couple of reasons that I have a, a real shot at this. One of them is the Fair Election Fund, which means that um, the Denver residents who donate to my campaign, that money gets matched nine, 900%. Um, so that's a significant amount of money, and, and it will allow me to to do the kinds of things necessary to reach a, a wider audience. Um, so that's without the fair election fund, it would be incredibly hard uphill slog. So that's one reason. Another reason is I believe we have a very clear and unique message for Denver voters and something that I don't, I don't believe many of the other candidates do have is their, their message is very scattered. And, and thirdly, we, we have a true grassroots campaign. We, this is an all-volunteer, student-led campaign, and it's entirely grassroots. It's people just giving their time and energy, and we have incredible energy in our meetings. People, everyone in this campaign believes we're going to win this. So we, we, we think that eventually, sometime in the next month or so, the campaign will catch fire, and, and it'll, it'll kind of blow up. So that's, that's our faith, Craig. We're, we're living on faith. <laughs> Well, and, and and hard work, too. Are you a hard worker? I mean, that's what I'd be looking for in the mayor of Denver. First and foremost, do you have a work ethic? What could you point to other than the steel worker background? That's pretty impressive. But are you a hard worker like that? Yeah, I've been a hard worker my whole life. Um, that includes, you know, teaching full time for 25 years at CU Denver. That includes running a, a theater troupe on the side. That's all volunteer, by the way. It's it's not any kind of paid position. It's just a group of people coming together and telling stories. Um, so my whole life, that's all I've ever known. My, I watched my parents work themselves um, to death, really. And, you know, that's just something that's ingrained in me. When did you start thinking about maybe being a leader in Denver, an elected leader, the mayor of Denver? 
Yeah, good question. You know, it it came c- concurrently with my teaching experience. Um, I accidentally stumbled into teaching. I didn't plan to do it. I, I've been shy my whole life, um, and the thought of public, you know, public speaking for a living terrified me. But the first chance I had to do it as a graduate student, I loved it, and I knew that would be my vocation, my calling. And so every every year, every semester, I form you know, just close relationships with students. Um, and you're talking about 25 years. I, I did the math and figured I, I've taught about 20,000 students. And there you go. There's, a, I think, a very strong and solid grassroots base of support. But Some how, ma- how many in- of those students uh, stay and live in Denver? That That's that's true. Many of them do not. I, I don't know what the percentage of those are, are living today in Denver. It would, it would probably be a third maybe or or 20 percent but even the ones who do not they might live in the outskirts they have many friends who do right so the networks of of that base is really what i'm what i'm banking on and counting on and that's my entire campaign are the people who have been in my classrooms and, and it's word of mouth it's like rate my professor they say you are hot it looks like you work out i i don't know but you embrace <laughs> it you're entertaining like i say after reading about you Sounds like a great class, stimulating as hell. How many different young minds do you get to teach every semester? Um, it's probably about 50 a semester. It used to be, you know, when I was early in my career, I was teaching 200 a semester. And that's because when you're new, they kind of throw you to the, to the large classes. And now I have more seminars and smaller classes. But, you know, the, the thing is that my, my love for my work has never diminished. And I bring that from day one. I, I, I start every class, Craig, from the very first minute of the first class before I've introduced myself, before I've handed out the syllabus. I, I burst into class dressed as a 19th century Irish miner from Leadville. And I launch into a monologue that we're on strike in Leadville and the men are dying in the mines and we need their help. <laughs> and I'm asking them for help and I'm pleading with them the monologue lasts about 10 minutes, and, and then I leave, and I come back, of course, as myself. But it leaves the students in this immersed in this image in their, their imagination that political science is not data about elections. And it's political science is, is about struggle. It's about people fighting for change and struggle. And once they understand that, political science becomes a new thing it opens up doors for them so so i i've i've opened my classes in that costume for 20 years and they all remember that monologue you know so now so isn't that of- isn't that kind of easy like i was a prosecutor for 16 years and i would use the same jokes over and over in jury selection and they would work because it was a fresh audience so how hard is it to be a professor when you've got killer material it's been there for over 20 years can't you just kind of mail it in after 10 or do you know what i'm saying it just seems like a great life being a professor sure things change occasionally but once you have your act down then you i guess you can create the the romero theater troupe it just seems like a great life i thought about being a professor is it all that i think it is I believe it is, Craig. It's it's been 
an unimaginable life for me. You know, imagine I'm growing up in a steel town where men are raised and socialized to see themselves as using their backs for a living and their bodies wear down. Their hands are like sandpaper. And, and by the time they, they reach their 60s, they're broken down. So that's the life I grew up imagining men led. And to use my mind, to use my intellect, to, to, to be immersed in the world of ideas and to make a living doing that, that's a dream. So whenever I hear a colleague complain, I, I just can't imagine how there's anything to complain about. <laughs> I know, agree. Me, and, and, I, 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 and we're going to get to it. I, I, on a critical day where the working numbers are great in America, an Irish guy, Joe Biden, in charge, I think he deserves some credit. But we're going to focus more on Denver, where I grew up. And I think our history is intertwined, kind of like the syllabus of your U.S. history through fiction class, because my Jewish ancestors somehow found their way to Leadville, Colorado. And my great grandfather, Charles, who was a big guy, he wasn't in the mines. He was bouncing at the bars and managing a saloon or helping run it before Leadville's luck kind of ran dry and a lot of people came down to Denver. Sounds like that's in the bailiwick, the heart of your research. You've written a lot about the Irish in Leadville. Why are you so attracted to uh, the Irish? It sounds like you have a lot of Irish pride. Uh, tell us where all this comes from. Yeah, wow. I had no idea you had Leadville roots, Craig. That's fascinating. And um, I'll say that um, there's a there's a wonderful memorial to Leadville's uh, Jewish community, 19th century community, in the cemetery up there. And um, I'm friends with the guy that, that was behind that effort. And there's an old um, temple that's been converted into a museum. And uh, about Leadville's Jewish community, right? And the work that we're doing on the Irish community is very similar. Um, the The Irish community was the largest ethnic community in Leadville by far, by by double, larger than than any other group in the 1880s. And it was the largest Irish immigrant community between the West Coast and the Midwest. It was a massive. There were around 3,000 Irish-born people living in Leadville at any time. That's at one time. There's that's more people than live in Leadville today. And I, don't, so, I don't think the average person realizes what a big deal Leadville was back in the day. Yeah, it, it was as big as Denver in the mm -hmm. 1880s, and uh, it, it pushed 40,000 people. And, and that happened overnight. The, the The rush started in 77, 1877. By 1880, you're talking about 30,000 people. So. Um, it was it was quite a massive thing, so I, I kind of stumbled across that as a graduate student looking for a doc, a dissertation topic, and couldn't believe what I was seeing and learning, and dove into it. And the monologue that I do, by the way, of the Irish miner is based upon a guy who who led a strike up there in 1880 from Dublin. He was born in Dublin, 28 years old. His name was Michael Mooney, and so in the context of doing that research, I found this. Um, cemetery um in the back of the cemetery is a popper a popper section so it's called evergreen cemetery and in the back there's a massive section of poppers who are buried there's there's about six thousand burials and they're unmarked and they're sunken and they're in a pine forest it's one of the craziest 
landscapes you can ever imagine. And so I, I found records for the names of the people buried there, discovered that in the Catholic section, that they're mostly Irish immigrants. So I reached out to the Irish government and we, div- we brought together a, a committee of local people and started working toward a memorial. And six years later, it's almost complete. It'll be unveiled in September. It's a, it's a large mound, about 100 feet in diameter, with a, a minor and a statue of a minor. And on all four sides of the minor, there'll be 1,400 names of those buried there and their ages. Here's the thing the average age of the people buried there is 22. Mm. And that tells you just how hard, right. you know, 10,000 feet, life was just incredibly difficult. There were epidemics, there were mine accidents. Um, so we're, we're memorializing um, those folks who sort of died unnamed and unknown in very desperate situations. So I've been doing that for six years. And if anyone's interested, reach out to me. The unveiling will be September 16th. Nice. I like your Irish pride, and I have uh, Irish through marriage uh, in my children, and I've had, you know, just so many relationships with Irish people, but I'm just, I I don't have a a grip, I don't know if anybody can have a grip on the psyche of the Jewish people or the Irish people, but I take note of Joe Biden, and to me, he's a quintessential Irish guy, and kind of emphasizes the same things you do, workers, and it's all about the working man. Do you think Joe Biden's doing a good job? Are you a Biden kind of politician? I think in some ways, in in one sense, we both relate closely to our working class roots. And I think more than anything, that would be the the connection. I don't agree with all of his policies, but I think in terms of... uh, you know, here's the thing about Irish Americans is today, Craig, Irish Americans are one of the most educated, successful, comfortable ethnic groups in the United States by any statistic. But we're only a few generations removed from desperate poverty and hard backbreaking work. And, and so life might be comfortable but we're very close to desperation. It's, it's, it's in our DNA. It's, it's in our, it's in our grandparents, you know? And so that is a, a kind of reminder, a sort of a nudge, a daily nudge, not to forget who, where we came from and who, who we are. And I think that really matters. I think that that's something that every politician should know is who they are, who they are at their bare basic foundation because that's 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 what people are going to base decisions on when it comes down to it. So, so I think you know, um, you know, you you, you mentioned um, Jewish roots. One thing that Irish and Jewish immigrants have so much in common in this country is they were the two groups that never really returned to Europe. Almost every other group went back. As many as fifty percent of them returned to where they came from. But Irish and Jewish immigrants didn't feel they had anything to go back to. So there's that sense of exile that's deeply ingrained. And also those two groups formed the backbone of the American labor movement, the early American labor movement. Irish and Jewish workers were the backbone of that. So so there's really a lot there, a lot of common threads there to kind of look at and, and appreciate. 
And I think that today there's there's the makings of a, a kind of workers' rights movement we haven't seen in generations. And it's young people. It's it's baristas. It's 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 custodians. It's fast food workers. It's it's workers in industries that we never imagined would. You know, Trader Joe's, uh, King Supers. It's and and it's not just young people, but it's young people that are driving this movement. So there's change coming, and I think that whoever's elected mayor has to be cognizant of that. Has to be sensitive, tuned into that. So our our slogan for this campaign is Denver Workers First. It's very simple. It's just taking the lens and making sure the lens is on the wage earners, the wage earners that clean, the wage earners that serve food, the wage earners that pick food, the wage earners that take care of elderly, the wage earners who take care of children, um, the wage earners who build buildings. They can't afford to live in the city that they work in. you know. And so it's a very simple, very focused campaign. And that's why we think it's gonna catch fire is that the focus is so clear and so um, so pronounced. So it's, and, and we're getting so much support. We don't have any money to really be, do any mass advertising, but, but we're, we, it's amazing. Since the Denver Post article came out, how much attention we've received. In this that, that was a beauty. And in the Denverite, and I'll link some of those, but let's not quite yet leave that Irish pride subject because when I think of Joe Biden, I also think. Irish Catholic, you've already said you are Irish Catholic. Is this experience that you described, is it for Irish Catholic people? And is that an oxymoron? I mean, I, I, I'm confused because I know there's battles between Protestants and Catholics in Ireland. It went on for a long time. The English and the British, I really don't understand it all that well. But are you saying it's the Irish Catholics who left and never came back? Is it the Irish Catholic experience that you are talking about? Yeah, yeah. When, when I say the sense of exile, I'm referring specifically to the Irish Catholic experience. There, there, there were many Irish Protestants, we, we tend to call them Scots-Irish or Ulster Scots, who came in the 18th century to the U.S. and settled in the Appalachia region. Um, but but the, the, the diaspora I'm, I'm talking to, speaking to is, is Irish Catholics. Who, who didn't see themselves as immigrants. They saw themselves as exiles. They saw themselves as having been forced out hmm. because of occupation, because of cultural annihilation and famine, starvation. So, You know what illustrates your point pretty well? It's the German family, the Trump family, after they came to America, he wanted to go back. I think it was... Um, Donald's grandfather, after he made some money in America, he wanted to go back, but they said, no, you didn't serve in the war, buddy, so you can't come back. I just was fascinated by that, and uh, it was triggered by what you had to say. The other common experience for Irish Americans and Jewish Americans, right here in little old Colorado a hundred years ago, there was quite the outbreak of bigotry against Jews, Catholics, Blacks, by an organization called the Klan. And I see that you are really well-educated on that subject. I've tried to come up to speed. This podcast has had several shows recounting that era 100 years ago. I'm fascinated because my grandfather, Harry, was trying to practice law in the Sims building downtown at the time, but it was tough 
with the Klan chief judge, Clarence Morley, ascendant, you had to send non-Jewish lawyers to argue the case. And then Morley was so popular, he became governor 100 years ago. And they had their claws into the Democrats and the Republicans. Morley was a Republican, Stapleton a Democrat. What do you make of that era, and how does it inform your mayoral run? Yeah, um, that's interesting, because I was just in Golden with a friend, and we were walking around South Table Mesa, Mm -hmm. and I'm talking about that. That was once a a cross-burning location, Um, and Golden was a stronghold, as was Arvada and and places like Boulder. But... um, yeah, you know, people think typically of Colorado and Denver, Boulder as a very progressive place, and it is for the most part today. But but historically, that was not the case. You know, Colorado had the second highest per capita, the second highest largest membership in the KKK in the 20s. Indiana was the first, and Colorado was second. It was something crazy like a quarter of all the the men in the, in the in the region were were somehow tied to the to the clan so it was massive and i think that that history is important um it, it wasn't necessarily the same kind of clan that you would find in the deep south that was focused on racial violence um you know the clan here was certainly racist but but their focus was more anti-semitism and anti-catholicism so they were focused on making sure CU fired all of its Jewish professors. They were focused on making sure the Denver Police Department fired all of its Catholic officers, you know, cleansing these public institutions of the stain of of um, Judaism and Catholicism was really the focus of the Klan here. So, so that's a history that any mayor needs to know, you know, certainly. And we learned that lesson with the, the Stapleton fiasco and, and there's a lot more beyond that. And I mean, many of the public buildings and streets and, and neighborhoods carry, carry names of people up to some pretty nefarious things. And so I, and, and that's one of the things we're doing in this campaign is we're going to be going to certain parts of Denver where historical events happen that people don't really know much about and making TikTok. Vi- My students are going to be making TikTok videos, Craig, nice. of me ta- speaking at these places and putting them out into social media as a way of showing that any mayoral um, candidate and any mayor has to be rooted in Denver's history. And it's a complex history. It's not a simple one. It's so complex. Absolutely. And I've seen many iterations. When I stepped into into the Denver DA's office, hired by Dale Tooley, almost immediately he was once again running for mayor of Denver. So I got a little thrust into Denver politics that way. And then uh, Norm Early, his successor, he famously ran for Denver mayor. That was a little before your time, the early 90s. Norm Early ran against Wellington Webb. That's before you got here. I know. I, I actually remember that. That was the first mayoral race that I that I recall. Um, and that was when Webb got out the, the walking yes. shoes and, and his famous uh, walking the neighborhoods. And I thought that was brilliant politically. Um, so, um, yeah, but, but his I've, other brilliance was, uh, he was a major figure along with his wife, Wilma and the Denver democratic party, which kind of controlled things. Uh, Norm had support from a lot of big corporate donors 
and maybe the establishment, but Webb got the Denver Democrat Party. I don't know if those dynamics even play out anymore. Have you been active in the Democratic Party? Does it even matter? You know, on, on the fringes, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not certainly not an insider at all in the Democratic Party. I, I, I don't um, attend, you know, any of those events. Um, you know, politically, I tend to, to vote for Democrats. Um, but but that's, you know, I, I'm just I'm, I'm very independent minded. And the only you know, I, I, I admire a lot of our local leaders and whatnot. But I think what one area of the Democratic Party has come up short is is um, being progressive and all but labor. There's a lot of uh, uh, politicians who have very great progressive ideas and values, and the record is great, quite good on those issues. But when it comes to workers' rights, they they fall short. So, um, and that's one of the one of the reasons I have admired Joe Biden is that he, for the most part, he didn't like what he did with the rail railroad strike, but for the most part, he has stayed true to that to those roots. Um, but yeah, I, I come from a long line of of Democratic voters. You were also very interested in social justice. You have dedicated a lot to uh, starting this organization, Romero's Troop. It involves the theater. I love the theater, by the way. And uh, I'm excited to hear you talk about Romero's Troop. How did you come up with the name and the concept and tell everybody what it's all about? Yeah, so um, the Romero Theater Troupe is... It came out of my classrooms. I I started using theater to teach history twenty some years ago, when I just couldn't stand the way history's taught traditionally. You probably had this, Craig. It's, here, memorize these dates and names, and there'll be a test, and that and that was it. That was how history was taught. So I I almost quit the profession, and then I decided to try something bold, and I started instead of giving final exams with memorization. I had the students create skits about historical events and it really changed the classroom. And what it did is it made students on the margins who were disengaged in the whole semester, it brought them to life and the whole classroom dynamic shifted. So I thought after a few years of that, wow, theater is really a powerful tool. I want to bring non-traditional history, sort of like the history we just discussed with the KKK. I want to bring non-traditional history to the public and to working class audiences through a, a theater troupe. And so we, we, I started contacting former students. We cobbled together a, a ragtag group and Regis university invited us to perform a play about the, about Oscar Romero. It was the 25th anniversary of his death. He's a Salvadoran Bishop who was murdered in 1980 because he was speaking on behalf of the poor in El Salvador and agents of the Salvadoran government had him murdered for that. So he's a kind of a Martin Luther King figure in Central America. So we didn't know much about him, but in the context of researching his life and putting on this performance in 2005, we were enthralled with him. So we took, we took his name. So we're, we've been the Romero troop. Next month is our 18th anniversary. We are an all-volunteer group. We have no director. We don't have, we don't have a budget. Um, everything we need is donated, including performance spaces. And we've been doing this for 18 years, taking 
non uh, unknown history, non-traditional history to the stage as a way to educate um, usually working class audiences because our shows are all free. And we've been great, hugely successful. Our audiences have been have been very large, two or three hundred people, and um, it's been quite an amazing ride. About six hundred people have come through the Romero Troop, <laughs> so that's my other base, by the way, Craig. Is people who know the work of the Romero Troop. That's kind of another source of. Uh, I'm just finding there. out yeah. about it. As I understand it, in some of your classes, you tell students, hey, interview your relatives, put together your own history, and that sounds uh, exciting, then maybe make it into a play. I love the creativity. Have you always been attracted to the theater? I have. I think I always wanted to try it. You know, I was I was an athlete in college, so I was kind of pegged as a jock. And one night I went, I found out where the thespians practiced. I wanted, to, I wanted to join, you know. So I went there, and I could hear them behind the door reciting their lines, you know. And I never got up the courage to open that door. I stood there. And so 20 years later, I, I, find, I found the courage by building this troupe. It was really a trans, transformation from being an athlete into being an artist. What weight class yeah. did you wrestle at? In college, 177. Whew. And wrestling is a... It's a it's a gladiatorial sport. I mean, it's if you can wrestle, you can do anything because you're out there. There's no one to, else to, to lean on. You know, you're out there by yourself, and it's um, it's do it's do or die, and it's a mental game. It's very much mental. So I I built a lot of confidence through that sport. I, I knew what I could do if I set a goal. I knew how discipline worked. I knew how work ethic worked, um, and that's been my that's taught me everything I've ever I've ever needed to know you might think all great wrestlers come from your neck of the woods but i went to high school with a guy named steve fine silver who has several sets of twin boys who've been superstar wrestlers at duke university i don't know if you've heard about the fine silver boys they're well after you but oh we have yes i i go to the colorado state championships every year i watch them when they're in high school and of course they all went to duke so i followed their careers one of them now is Michigan. So yes. I, I'm following and one him. of them's wrestling for the McAbee team in Israel. I mean, it's an amazing story. I'm going to get Steve Feinsilver on the show in a bit. And did you know that his father, the wrestler's grandfather, was Judge Sherman Feinsilver, longtime Denver judge? He was a Republican who routinely got the most votes in Denver. That's the way it was back in the early 60s. And then he was elevated to the federal bench. So there's a lot of Denver history there. But you're going to try to make history. And I think you have a chance because when I grew up around the block from uh, the Fine Silvers who lived on Exposition, you know what street I lived on? No. What, what street is just to the south of Exposition? It's a side avenue, not running all the way through Denver. But at certain points, there's a street called Walsh. W-A-L-S-H. Did you know Walsh Place in Denver? Have you ever seen that? Oh, yes. Yeah, I have run across it on occasion, yeah. There's also a Walsh, Colorado in Southeast. Right, and there's a Craig, Colorado, but I don't take credit for that. But I think your name Walsh is going to be a beauty because people, uh, I mean, John Walsh was the former U.S. attorney under Barack Obama. So people are kind of used to public figures named Walsh. And just growing up on a, street named Walsh. 
I liked it. I think it's a great name. Do you like it too? I do. It, it's it's um. In fact, a lot of my students just call me Walsh. They 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 cut off the doctor or the professor or the mister. They just call, sort of endearingly call me Walsh. Do you know who Dad's Creek got named after in Denver history? The Walsh. I do. I do not, unless it might have been Tom Walsh who was connected up in Leadville. Anyway, I think it's great that you love the theater. What's your favorite play? Mine is Hamilton. I just can't get enough of it. Yeah, I'm a big fan of Hampton. My kid loves it. So we watch it together. We've watched it together a few times. Um, you know, I've always been a fan of Shakespeare. I always go to the Border Shakespeare Festival and watch and watch some of that. But but what we do is is so different because it's it's real stories of real people currently living those stories. And typically when we perform our shows, the stories we tell, the person whose story we're telling is playing themselves. Or at the very least, they're narrating the story as the story is being performed. And so that's a very powerful thing for an audience. And also to see someone who hasn't been trained in, in, the, in theater, who doesn't, you know, isn't polished on stage, nervous and, and doing the best they can. That's very powerful for an audience. So our form of theater is so vastly different from what you might see at the Performing Arts Center. And we'll be performing an 18th anniversary show in, in March. If anyone's interested, they can find more on the website. Um, so, so uh, yeah, uh, uh, and it's dedicated to social justice, which is an interesting term, just the last part of it, justice. What does that mean? I've wrestled with that a lot, being a lawyer for over 40 years. I mean, who decides social justice? What if a police officer wanted to come to your troop and say, hey, I, I see a lot of your stories aren't that nice to the police, but let me tell a social justice story from my perspective. Would that be available at the Romero's troop? We would certainly be open to it. You know, We're open to anyone that has the, the courage to come to us and bring a story to us. Um, but typically, typically, what we try to do in our mission is to is to give a microphone to communities that are typically silenced or marginalized. And let me get, for example, undocumented communities or um, unhoused, um, you know, communities that that have faced the kind of systemic issues that that are important to expose. And that's and that's that's sort of our guiding our guiding mission is to give a microphone through theater to to those communities and and that's what we've been doing right but it's just like a wrestling team I imagine I played a lot of sports team sports but eventually there are cuts who makes the cuts at the Romero trip do you say nah that's not for us are you the decider <laughs> no. Every decision is made um, by the by the group. It's a it's a consensus model, and professional theater people can't believe it works. Um, how do you do a consensus model with theater? But that's how we we operate in our process. We don't script the stories. We don't have a director that's who's barking orders. We we shape the stories and build the stories collectively, and it's something that we have. It's a, I think it's. It's the only model of its kind in the country. Yeah, but America. eventually somebody has to make a decision or the final call. I mean, do you well, raise hands? Is it majority rules? And who <laughs> makes up the group? Well, it we, we typically don't vote because we talk through 
ideas and disagreements until there's consensus. And that's, that's the beauty of consensus is once it forms, everyone gets behind it. Now you're so running for mayor of Denver. Some people might hear this and say, well, I like Walsh, but he doesn't seem like he wants to decide anything. And as a mayor, he's, the buck will stop with you. Don't you agree? Well, I'm not afraid to make difficult decisions. Um, you know, that's, that's certainly something I know is, is a big part of, of the role of a mayor. However, even, an even bigger part of the role of a mayor is, is listening as deeply as possible to people in the community from every perspective and angle. And I think that's really what the Romero Troop does is, is, is we try to, you know, listen as much as we can to every perspective until it's all on the table. Once it's all on the table, then the best decision can be, can be discovered and, and identified. If it's not all on the table, you're, you're playing blind. You, you don't really know the issue through and through as deeply as you need to be. So I'm not afraid to make tough decisions, but I won't make tough decisions until everything is out. And I think that's, that's the responsibility a mayor has. You are going to have to delegate because it's just such a huge job being mayor of Denver. So many departments and how many different jobs? Thousands of jobs will be under your purview. Uh, does that make you feel good? Do you feel like you could be uh, the top boss to that many workers? Yeah, I was, <laughs> I was looking at a list of, of um, who the mayor appoints. And I couldn't believe my eyes, the massive numbers of, of um, people that in offices and dimensions of the city government that the mayor appoints. So, so it's quite a daunting um, challenge. But, you know, the first thing I would do if elected would just be to reach out to the most capable, most competent people to surround myself with them, you know, including people who have a, a deep knowledge and and experience in city government. Um, I think that would that would help to, you know, make my learning curve uh, shorter, and also give me access to that experience that's so vital. When John Hickenlooper got elected, he was nice enough to have me on his transition committee for public safety, and Allocate was chosen to be manager of public safety. I think they call it director now. There's a guy named Armando Saldate in the position. The police department, I'm obviously interested in that, having worked with them for so long. Ron Thomas, a Denver guy, has just been elevated to chief. Um, then there's the Denver city attorney, which runs one of the most powerful law firms in Colorado. Do you have ideas on who is going to be put in big jobs like that, or are you blank slate on that? No, I, I have ideas, but I'm not going to, certainly not going to name anyone um, on, on this interview. You know, again, it, I would want to consider every, everyone and reach out to people who know who the best people are and interview them. I mean, it would be a really extensive process. So, but I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to throw out any names. Do you have any role models among Denver politicians? Do you like Michael Hancock? Did you think Hickenlooper did a good job? You've been around to see Wellington Webb in action. Who's a role model? Federico Pena? Bill McNichols? Um, Tom Kurgan? 
I think Pena and Webb for sure, because they were, they, they broke new ground, you know, and they um, transformed the kind of the office in many ways, expanded access, you know, um, Hickenlooper because he, he came out of nowhere, this kind of fresh face. He was kind of this quirky personality. He had this great sense of humor. Uh, people like that, you know, um, I think I can, can relate in some ways to this, this new, new face. I, I sort of arrived in this race late and people seem to appreciate, um, someone who's not uh, grounded in, and political speak. <laughs> how do you feel? That, how do you feel about beer? About beer? Yes. Um, you know, not as deeply as Hickenlooper, but um, how about know, how about cannabis? Oh, I'm I'm not a I'm not a, a, a user, but I, I certainly support the direction that we've taken with um, legalizing it. Yes. What about guns? Do you believe uh, Denver should maintain its assault weapon ban and get even stronger when it comes to gun safety? I do. I do. I am a supporter of of um, gun safety for sure, and and I know how difficult this is because the courts have tended to strike down a lot of municipalities who have moved to to ban assault weapons or. Um, you know, whatever it is. So I, I know the I know the difficulty of this issue, but I do think that we are awash as a society in dangerous weapons that were made for war. And there are things that municipal governments can do, you know, to make to make us feel safer. I agree with that. What about the Denver police? Are they in good shape, bad shape? And as you talk about the history of Irish Catholic people in America, wasn't policing uh, and firefighting, those those were filled largely by Irish Catholics. And is that still true today? Do you take pride in that? And what's the dynamic there? Well, I come from a, a, a big Irish Catholic family in Pennsylvania, some of whom were, were in law enforcement. So I have, you know, some of that in my own, in my own background. And I know that DPD has a history of difficulties, um, you know, there was a huge scandal in the in the, in the 60s, I think. Yes, the, the Denver thing. burglary scandal. The burglary scandal, yeah. And, and uh, you know, during times like the Chicano movement, police brutality was, was such an enormous issue, and that some of that continues. So I think police reform and the police department are going to be the top of the list of, for challenges that the new mayor will face. And... Uh, one of the trends that I appreciate and support is the trend of, um, you know, sending people without guns on their hips, uh, medical and mental health professionals, out to many 911 calls when it's appropriate. Um, I think the training of police in de-escalation tactics needs to continue and expand. Um, so. So there, you know, there's a, there's a lot of trends nationally that I would want to look at best practices. What has worked nationally? What what can we what can we pull into our own city? But that that's to me one of the greatest challenges in every city. This isn't just Denver. In every city across the country, is how can a police force look like it's the community that it served, and how can a police force um, respond in a way where all all communities and all economic levels feel that the police are serving them and not policing them. And that, that's been a big difference. That's a huge difference. 
Right. I, I'm just, yeah. I, I just think about the Irish Catholic experience, and certainly there are a lot of people who turn it into workers' rights like you do, Joe Biden, et cetera. But then there are Irish Catholics who might be more right-wing, say a Pat Buchanan type. I mean, which which is the more representative experience? Is it yours? Is Pat Buchanan the outlier? Or do you see what I'm saying? Just looking from the outside, I'm wondering about that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a mixed bag. You know, I, I, I suppose it's similar to Jewish Americans, you know, right. the whole spectrum. Um, you know, there's, and today, actually, actually, the data shows that today Irish Americans are pretty evenly split between the two parties. I mean, you can point out a lot of very prominent Republicans, Irish, Mike Pence, Paul Ryan, Kevin McCarthy. I could go on and on and on. And, you know, 30 or 40 years ago, you'd be hard pressed to find any, um, you know, a handful of very prominent um, Irish Catholic Republicans. So, so there's been a shift and there's a great debate within Irish circles today about these issues. Certainly the police and fire forces have always traditionally been deeply rooted. And I mean, you see the police funerals always have, um, you know, bagpipes, bagpipes. all of that. So, so there, there's that cultural rootedness, you know, that is important. And I don't think you have to be Irish to like bagpipes, but I think it helps. Because maybe it's, maybe it's like a chauffeur blowing. It's it's a cultural thing that you have to be that way to appreciate. But I don't yeah. anticipate bagpipes in my funeral. What about uh, Denver and its sports teams? You're a sports guy. Are you into the Denver sports scene? And can you keep the Broncos in Denver? I I can't imagine the Broncos ever leaving Denver. Um, you know, that's but, what they said in Dallas. I mean, a lot of these cities yeah. have teams playing in suburbs. Yeah, yeah, that's that's true. Um, but, you know, right now, my focus is really more on the, the big social issues. And I'll come around to when it comes to the sports team. All right. Well, we'll, we'll then let's, sure. yeah, in our few minutes yeah. remaining, let's talk about the big social issues. I don't like uh, the homeless situation in Denver. What about you? Well, I mean, I don't think anyone, I, I can't imagine any human being likes to see people suffering and shivering in public spaces. Correct. Um, and so um, I think... What can you, you do know, about it? Well, I, we have to look at what's being done successfully internationally. Um, uh, Scandinavian countries, Denmark, um even places like Singapore have been very successful and and you, you see almost no homelessness in these countries even in the United States uh, Houston has has had great success um, 60 some percent decrease in the numbers of people living on the streets because what they've done is they've marshaled that they figured out a way to marshal federal local and municipal and state resources in, in, a, in a kind of a streamlined way they get people into simple studios or one bedroom apartments. And I think Denver can follow suit with this. Atlanta has done to a lesser extent, had some success too. I think Denver can follow suit. I think Denver has the resources. I think we have to confront the idea that people who live on the streets are there through their own fault. 
and are there because they have some kind of character flaw. We have to really look deep, more deeper than that. Um, and because if we blame, go ahead. <clears throat> well, if we blame the people on the streets, then we're justifying not doing anything. So, so I would say um, two things. I would say we we can learn from the success of other places. We can create situations where there is access to simple housing beyond traditional shelters. And, and we can also bring voices of people who have lived on the streets currently or formerly to the table and talk to them and, and, and invite them to, to help shape policy. So, so those are, that's kind of what I, you know, as mayor, I would, I would tend to, to look at. You've named some cities that you think are doing pretty well. What about politicians? Do you have political role models, heroes? Who would they be? Mm, good question. <laughs> um, you know, I, 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 I don't know. I, I, I'm a fan of of Barack Obama just because he's such a great speaker, and he did have a, a way of making the country feel hopeful and united in a way that I haven't seen a politician do. Um, Bernie Sanders, because of his fire and because of him kind of unapologetic um, fight fighting for the working class. I've always admired that. Um, yeah. So those are just a couple that jump out to me, you know, where do you get your news from? What are your sources? Oh, I, I, I try to look like, like my students. I try to look everywhere. Where do you, um, where do you put your money? Who do you subscribe to? Well, I, I, and, you know, in terms of the cable channels, I'm I'm watching all of them. I'm watching everything from Fox to MSNBC to CNN and BBC. Um, I read the New York Times and Washington Post as much as I can. I always read the Denver Post and Westward. Um, and then, you know, I just consume as much what as I can. That? What about my Colorado Sun? You know, I'm a columnist there. Wouldn't I kill yeah, you yeah. to mention the Colorado Sun? Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I'm a fan of the Colorado Sun. In fact, um that um it was kevin, born of the workers i know exactly um and, and kevin simpson is that kevin simpson did an did a wonderful story about our work in leadville the memorial i told you about uh for the colorado sun about about a month ago so so yeah i and kevin's been doing it forever you know yes so, he has uh, He's yeah a, so just like me how, how can people get involved in your campaign or learn more um, reach out to me, um, james.walsh at comcast.net. Um, and what we really need right now is is to, to qualify for the Fair Election Fund um, money, we need to reach 250 Denver residents having given us donations. So we're, we're, we're now scraping and clawing by January 19th. So if anyone wants to help, they can just go to www.jimwalshformayor.com. There you go. Make a, make I'll like it. Jim Walsh for mayor. You like to go by the name Jim. That's great. And yeah, uh, yeah it's it, it's it's uh, it's possible that you are going to win. And uh, would you be open to doing debates? Uh, how do you anticipate this going down with over two dozen candidates? Uh, what do you think the process will be like? I I don't know how they're going to do this. I think. Certainly, the people who qualify for the Fair Election Fund will, will be because they're required to participate right. in the debates. So that's our focus right now is qualifying so that we're in those debates. But I've been I've been invited to some forums, which is nice, and 
and I'm hoping to be in as many of the forums and debates as, as possible. I'm really looking forward to meeting the other candidates. I respect many of the other candidates, and I'm, I'm definitely not going to be running a negative campaign. I'm not going to be attacking the other candidates. I'm going to be talking about what I want to do. I don't think you have a puncher's chance. I think you have a wrestler's chance, and you're going <laughs> to grab hold of this, and I have a feeling that the opponents might not know what hits them. When you debate, do you think you're going to bring out any of your costumes? Are you going to be that Irish miner or anything like that? Someone, someone suggested that, um, and, and it, it might happen. You know, I'm, I'm pretty bold when it comes to being creative, so we'll we'll see. But, I, but um, you know, I'm for one thing I am is tenacious and I will be scratching and clawing. And I think you're, you're right. The other candidates better be paying attention because the city's looking for a fresh voice and new voice, you know, someone who, who can come at this from an historical perspective and someone that may not have a political background, but more of a background like I have. So I know this could catch fire and I know it will. And I look forward to that. And I look forward to being on your show again, Craig. It's been great. To, I've, I've listened to you for, for years and it's been it's great to finally meet you a little bit it's fantastic for you to be my guest thanks for doing it good luck keep your sense of humor and you're teaching through all of this too or are you going to take time off oh i'll be teaching a couple courses this semester so the students will get a kick out of hearing about the campaign i'm sure <laughs> fantastic good luck to you thanks again happy new year happy new year craig bye-bye bye-bye now, during the pandemic and otherwise, a lot of people have so much affection for their pets. That must come up all the time. What's going to happen to Scruffy? What can you tell us about that, Michael Bailey? What you can do is create a pet trust in Colorado. You put money into trust, and then that money is available and earmarked to care for the dog. And it can last the lifetime of the dog or 21 years, whichever is shorter. And then when the time frame for the trust is up, you can dictate who gets whatever leftover money or I have several clients who will leave it to some sort of animal shelter or animal rescue to be able to care for other animals. How cool is that? You can go to Mike Bailey's office and he has offices all over and you could meet at your home, whatever. I love the way you practice law. You've kept it going for a long time. Tell everybody how they can make you their lawyer. So my phone number is 720-394-6887. And again, that's 720-394-6887. They can call me or they can go online to mobileestateplanning.com. And there's a link there where you can schedule an appointment with me. Okay, here's the thing. You've been hurt. Maybe, God forbid, someone's been killed. You don't know what to do. If it happened in Colorado, please get a hold of me. Check out my website, craigscoloradolaw.com. craigscoloradolaw.com because I have four decades of experience. Sadly, I've helped a lot of people who have been hurt terribly through no fault of their own. 303-734-7156. Please call Craig, Craig Silverman, a voice for victims. 303-734-7156. Hello, Troubadour. How are you, Craig? Not bad for an old man. Happy New Year. First show of the new year. 
That's why you brought us such a wonderful song, New Last Chance. Happy New Year, and welcome home from your from your Southwest tour. I'm going to give you a little a tour on Southwest, better than the airlines where they had all those problems. I was my own pilot. I took a little cruise about the uh, American Southwest, and uh, that's our neighborhood, right? Oh, I love going Southwest, and I've been to Utah, Arizona many times, the Grand Canyon, the, the, the river, the, the, the desert rivers when I used to kayak. Anyway, I love Western Colorado and Utah and Arizona. Okay, then I'll talk about it right now. I went on a trip to somewhere you've never been. Now, Moab, you've been many times. That's the first stop. Easy. Four and a half, five hours, maybe six to get to Moab. Always inspirational, right? It is. Yeah, coming in on the Castle Valley, beautiful. It is. So I had my day in Moab. Then I went to St. George, Utah. Now, that's fantastic. It's a little drive across Utah, listening to American history play out on my satellite radio. And it was eventful, if you like, Republicans embarrassing themselves all week long, which I do. <laughs> so I had a lot of fun. And St. George, Utah, you know what they have there that, that they really don't have until you arrive? No. Tell Palm me. trees. Wow. Palm trees. Man. We're getting to the warmer climes. Yes. You don't see palm trees in Colorado, but down there in southern Utah, you do. And speaking of the Old South, they seem to like that reputation. They used to have a school called Dixie State. They've got a big D on one of the mountains there and Dixie written here, there, everywhere. That's a term that's kind of gone out of favor, right? Dixie? Yeah. Yeah, you don't hear it much, do you? It's in the song. Well, the night they drove yes. old Dixie down. Yes, that's... Way down yonder in the land of cotton, all of that. They changed the name of Dixie State to Utah Tech. Okay, good. Better name. Now, you've got wholesome Utah sitting just above sinful Nevada. And you know what's between St. George and Mesquite? Um purgatory the virgin river oh it's close and then you have arizona the most interesting thing about this vast southwest united states when you're in st george utah if you drive to the neighbor community of mesquite just through that virgin river valley it's about 1500 feet below maybe 25 minute 30 minute drive but the whole drive almost all of it is through arizona wow that sounds beautiful, and I've never been there. In fact, I don't what think do I've mean, heard. You've never been. Well, there? I haven't. I've never even heard of the Virgin River. I I don't think I've even heard of it. You've never driven from St. George down to Mesquite? No. Oh, what a beautiful valley! It's it's it all opens up the the lower part of the desert. And so I went to Las Vegas. I had to check it out for old times' sake. I stayed downtown. The Gold Nugget used to be there with my mom and dad. Trish and I went there together. I checked in for a night, and I got all the Vegas I wanted, including that Fremont experience. I think I sent you some videos. Right, and your videos were all the Vegas that I want. I was thinking this about you. If you had the right kind of body for it, and I'm not saying you don't. 
There were some people who took off their clothes and painted their body, and they stood out there, showgirls. There were some Chippendale-type dancers, kind of naked, kind of not. Would you do that for money? Do you think there's a place for the Michelin Man there? (laughs) No, you know Michelin Man. Anyway, there's... I just felt kind of bad for the kids walking around with their parents, but it's an experience, and it was enough for me, so I went to a place you've never been before, but you have to go back someday with me, because I'm going back to Sedona, Arizona. Beautiful drive. Holy cow. Talk about a great drive from Vegas to Sedona. Went through all kinds of weather, by the way. Once you get out of this frozen tundra, it was nice enough to go bike riding in Moab, golfing in Mesquite, golfing in Vegas, golfing in Sedona. Thank God we're getting rid of this frozen tundra. I picked a good week to be gone. You did. You? Yes, you did. It has been frosty here. And it's also been kind of kind of gloomy. So how can it be you've never been to Sedona, Arizona? I don't know. Is there a big river that runs through there? What is that river that they... It's Oak Creek. That's the community there. It just cuts an incredible valley. But for a nature guy like you, I'd say it's got red rocks, only... I mean, Moab's kind of just an introductory course to Sedona. Do you know where the name Sedona comes from? Wow, that is, and that's giving it high rating. Um, Sedona, what, where would it come from? What is it? It's got to be Spanish. And I'm not sure what it would, what it means. It's such a new community. There's some guy named Schnebley who was the first postmaster in 1902 or something like that in this part of the world. And this guy Schnebley, there's a street or two named after him, had a wife named Sedona. Oh. They said, let's name it after her. I like that. So that's beautiful. It's a, yes. it's a woman's name. It's a woman's name, Sedona. You know what? I liked our guest today. You didn't listen to him, but I just interviewed him. He was fantastic. His name, James Walsh, Jim Walsh. He's a CU poli-sci professor, CU Denver. And you know what job he wants now? I don't. Denver mayor. Oh, okay. I think he's a serious candidate. There's a number. I know there's a lot of candidates. Over two dozen. It's stocked right now, huh? He had a great article in the Denver Post. He's a professor of U.S. history, and he has this theater company called Romero's Troupe. And what they do is they take stories and they turn them into many plays. You got to like that. I've always liked the concept of putting on a play, putting on a show, It's kind of what we do here, you know, kind of like what we do here. And uh, he does this year after year. He has has a group of former students who say, hey, you should be mayor. He gets top ratings on Rate My Professor. He was a college wrestler at Duke. He's smart as heck. And he wants to be mayor of Denver in this anything-goes time it could happen, just like Hickenlooper caught fire. He had never been in politics before. No, I, I think uh, that's very interesting. I like voting for a politician who has, a, a, especially an artistic life. Yes, he has that too. But mm-hmm. here are some of the classes that he taught. And you told me you took some classes at, at UC. I had a great, 
great experience at UCD. Okay, give me thumbs up or thumbs down on whether you take this class. These are classes he's taught through the years. Problems and Methods in Teaching History and Social Studies. Huh? Maybe. Maybe. U.S. History through Fiction. A definite yes. Colorado History. Definite yes. 20th Century Social Movements. I love it. Immigration and Ethnicity in American History. All great. History of the American Working Class. Mm, okay. U.S. History Survey Courses. Maybe not. Paths to the Present, an introduction to the discipline of history. Mm. Community Dis organizing. Discipline of history. So what would that be? What is that? How to what be a history. This guy, history. he tells me he used to be a hidebound history professor, and he taught conventional ways for a while, but then he decided, no. So for people who want to maybe make it their career, possibly, right. as so this guy, professors so, of history. Uh, right? yeah. Professor Walsh says that he comes in at the start of his class dressed as an Irish miner in the 1800s in Leadville. He uh, studied yeah. that era. Yeah. And he talks like this guy for the first 10 minutes of his class before he goes off stage and reemerges as the professor. Now, that's kind of cool, well, right? Well, that's the kind of thing that, that brings people into your, into your discipline, right? Yes. That creative thinking. You know, and, and just quickly on that, you know, when I was young, studying history was boring because it, it just I, – I wasn't mature enough. I didn't have enough experience to, to uh, you know, imagine these people as human beings, what, what the, you know, these, these great players in history. They were just kind of this flat, you know – uh, concept of a of a person, kind of a you know, kind of a um, not a real, one dimensional. Yes, not a real person. It's when right. you get older and really understand that there's so much we have in common with everybody. That yes. these these are people who were fathers and sons and husbands, and you know that they went through so many things that we do, and it, it makes it much more interesting to realize that they're human, right? Exactly. Yeah, that's his field. He yeah. wants to humanize the workers of America. And because he's Irish, he's fascinated by Irish Catholic history, the Irish in America, and he teaches about that, he thinks about it, and it's led him to the point where he wants to be the mayor of Denver to make it the most worker-friendly city in the country. Wow. That's an interesting aspiration, right? It is, and, that's a, and it's solid, man. That's a great aspiration. Well, there you go. You'd like his further classes, immigration, politics, poverty and politics, power and empowerment. You know what I always said after I ran for office in Denver? You can never be too liberal for Denver. So some of these things, even tending toward Bernie Sanders-like appeal, that's popular in Denver. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? So the fact that these people are going to, I would say the next mayor of Denver will be on the left, no doubt, mm -hmm. and probably pretty far on the left. The question is, will they be too far left for Denver? And I just have observed it for a while, and it's hard to be too far left for Denver, right? It's so where a progressive would you, place. And where do you think Hickenlooper in, during his, his time, uh, well, as mayor and governor, how would you classify him? How far left? Um, he's moderate, mm -hmm. uh, far to the left, but he's really pretty progressive when it comes to criminal justice issues. He had that Chinook fund that uh, I talked to him about on the radio. He didn't like it, but it was all social justice causes. Mm -hmm. uh, and 
when I asked for good role models, uh, Walsh did not back away from Hickenlooper. He's a good role model. Pena, look how liberal he was. He was popular in Denver. Denver welcomes progressives. Things are changing in Denver. Did you hear about the sad closing downtown? I've written about this restaurant, been there a million times. I thought it was one that would never go away. Did you hear what closed? No. The McDonald's oh. in 16th and Court. You've written of the McDonald's. Yes, that crazy I McDonald's, yeah, right? Yeah. I've taken witnesses there to try mm-hmm. to get them to calm down. I've, I, I thought it was just like the Star Wars bar. It, it would always exist, but no, things change. Denver's changing, that's for sure. I have to say that you've written a lot of songs, but this might be one of the loveliest songs. It's haunting. New Last Chance, I asked you for a great song for the New Year's. 2022, I think it was kind of a stinker of a year. By and large, the economy not good. America's still in disarray. But how about a new last chance for the world and for America and for Colorado in the year 2023? What a beautiful song. What caused you to write it? I like the... uh the 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 um, contradiction in the term of a, a new last chance because the last chance by all <laughs> by all means should be just the last chance right but to have a new last chance that there sometimes a last chance is followed by another chance and we've talked about this before especially in in in, in terms of of America it's a place where someone can start again right and they kept starting again with that vote for speaker did you follow that as we record on Friday afternoon. They're going to take another vote Friday night. Ken Buck has to fly back from Colorado. He's got health problems. He needed some treatment. They have to fly another new father back. And they think maybe they can get the vote or two. Lauren Boebert has joined with Matt Gates to be the face of the opposition. Honest to goodness, as I think about my former radio colleagues who have stuck with Lauren Boebert, I just shake my head and say, seriously, isn't she an embarrassment for Colorado? Well, she is to herself. You know, and I, I, I don't know. I, I see all of this, you know, everything that's, that's been, been uh, um, you know, stuck in Congress now because of, the, because of these, you know, mostly election deniers. Really, they're the ones who, who don't, who aren't voting for the speaker. Right. And, right. and uh, I, I think of it as a Republican problem, but really it isn't a Republican party problem because until we have a Speaker of the House, we're really not having a functional House of Representatives, are we? Right. But I mean, all they want to do is investigate Hunter Biden and make uh, people look bad instead of moving the country forward in the slightest. It's going to be a clown show and it makes us look so weak to our adversaries. But think about. What's happened with Matt Gates, Bobert, people of their ilk? These are mega maga types. And yet when Trump told Bobert, hey, vote for McCarthy, she said, in effect, sir, you are wrong. This is the mega way to go. In effect, she's saying the movement's gotten away from you, mm, old man. Right. And that's true. I do. I do think that's happening. Yes. It is happening, yes. and that's that's fun to watch, except it's not necessarily over. I saw the same thing happen with talk radio, where they just kind of took over, right? 
Same thing with Colorado Republican Party. It's a clown show. These people take over, and the audience ends up dictating what the station is going to do. The grassroots start telling the Republican Party, we're going to put in this loon or that loon. It's just not good. You know what America needs? A new last chance. Maybe this will be a wake-up call. I hope for regular Republicans, do they exist anymore? Oh, yeah, they do. I mean, I think there's plenty of them. I don't know why they're still Republicans. <laughs> because they hate the Democrats so much. Right, right. Which right, is, the yeah. Democrats and the whole progressive. Uh, that yes. part I understand. I, I can understand that, you know, the whole coastal intellectual, you know, progressive thing that gets that's can sometimes go kind of far to the left and it and it uh it doesn't sit well with with moderate conservatives right. you know it's just yeah. like the city of denver here i am fully supportive of anything that opposes maga and that has come from the left and thank god the democrats are sticking together but are they the best at running cities maybe yes maybe no maybe it's the individual but I do care about Denver. We're sitting here just a stone's throw from the city of Denver. I want Denver to do well. I want them to have a great mayor. And I'd like to have all the major candidates on this podcast. And we did it, number one, with Jim Walsh today. He's a major candidate. And it's wonderful that you have a great song for us on episode 130, Troubadour. And I hope, I'll look forward to listening to your interviews with the with the candidates. He's a cool guy. I yeah. wish I had him for a professor. Maybe I could audit his class. I want everybody to listen to this song. Listen to the musical magic of Dave Kunders. They're haunting, beautiful lyrics here. As a guy just wants one thing, a new last chance. Shabbat Shalom, Troubadour. Shabbat Shalom, Craig. Welcome home. Darken the sun River wide Great divide Me not listening to you at all You said goodbye Not thinking about what I could do Just what I can't Need a new life Feathered and tarred Branded and scarred Seeing you hundreds of miles away Here in our yard Losing ground Breaking down Even the sunrise don't stir me 
is a great sponsor of my show, but more than that, he's my lawyer, my end-of-life planning lawyer, and I've got two dogs. What about you? I have two dogs right now as well. And not only do you love your dogs at home with your kids and your wife, but you get involved with dog issues in your law practice. Tell everybody about that. So I will write pet trusts, which is you can earmark money to take care of your pets. Um, you know, a lot of people, you know, they've got their dogs and you know, they love their dogs. But then if somebody were to, you know, if you if you were to pass away, you know, who's going to take your dogs? Who would, who would love your dogs as much as you do? I don't know that anybody would love your dogs as much as you do. But like, I grew up with dogs. And so if I were to pass away, then my parents or my siblings could take the dogs. So when you set up a pet trust, you can dictate who's going to get those dogs and then who you can leave money to take care of the dogs as well. I like working with you and I think you are ahead of your time. You have 15 different locations. How cool is that? It's, it is nice to be able to go to all the different locations and you know meet people where it's comfortable and more convenient for them. And nobody wants to drive from one part of Metro Denver to the other to meet with a lawyer. You will come to them. Yep and I'll deal with traffic so you don't have to. Tell us how people can get in touch with you. My direct phone number is 720-394-6887, or they can go to my website, which is mobileestateplanning.com. And again, that's mobileestateplanning.com. And there's even a schedule, you know, there's a book an appointment link on, this, on the website. All right, Michael Bailey, thank you. Hey, I have some exciting news. I am starting my brand new law firm. It's Attitude Mine. The legal skills, mine. The support staff, incredible. Find us online soon at craigscoloradolaw.com. Find me right now on Twitter at Craig's Colorado. Craig Silverman, a voice for victims. Hey, how about that show? I told you Dave Gunder's song is haunting. It's beautiful. Professor Walsh, Jim, you have a great chance to be the mayor of Denver. Of course, you have to get by over 20 other people, but it's possible. Somebody's going to win, and I hope to have them on my show. Thanks for listening. Tell a friend. Please subscribe. Five stars is fantastic. Take the time, especially on Apple. Much appreciated. Happy New Year. Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 to noon, Mountain Time. Visit thecraigsilvermanshow.com for the podcast, blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show.